Uh, Baumzi, good evening to you and uh, good evening to you, uh, Henny Van Fieren, as well. Uh, good evening, Ayabonga, and uh, your listeners. Henny, are you with us as well? Ayabonga, thank you. Good evening to you and the listeners. Thank you so much for joining us, man. Uh, Baumzi, let me start off with you. Uh, certainly, as somebody who worked for many years at Mercedes-Benz, can you just paint a picture for us? Because we do know that uh, certainly by the time you joined in 83, uh, that uh, a few years later would uh, coincide with... Uh, uh, the uh, debt standstill in 1985 in South Africa and uh, the exit by many companies, uh, at least of all in the Eastern Cape, uh, the likes of General Motors and many others who uh, exited the country in response to the pressure that was being placed by consumers and people in the countries they came from. And uh, uh, certainly in this particular instance, one of the parties contesting the election has uh, fingered Mercedes-Benz as a company that should be paying reparations. Just paint a picture for us about Nash at that, at that point in time. And more importantly, uh, how did the company respond to all of the pressure uh, associated with the sanctions visited on the apartheid government. Well, thank you very much, uh, Bonga and uh, listeners. Well, as you indicated, I, indeed, I started working for Mercedes-Benz uh, in 1983. And you would recall that uh, that period was very, very interesting in the politics of South Africa. And uh, historically, you will recall that the period uh, from the late 70s the mid-80s was indeed uh, very challenging, especially within the labor movement. I became part of Methodist Band at a time which I would uh, classify as the, the pinnacle of our revolution for a number of reasons. You, you will recall by that time in East London, uh, Eastern Cape, uh, then there was the birth, I think in the late uh, the birth of a trade union called South African Allied Workers Union mm. uh, and many other uh, independent uh, unions who were born called Gau and uh, and so on, and the Makusa uh, and so on. And those unions uh, did not find joy and amongst the employers. And the uh, Netherlands was not immune. Uh, because after the birth of, of Sao, and the other core incident is that the South African government and the Siskai uh, government were very, very much opposed and against the South African Allied Workers Union. Their view was that uh, this that trade union was more associated with the African National Congress and the South African Communist Party. Immediately after the launch of Sao in East London, the then Minister of Labor, uh, Mr. Fanny Border, flew to East London, and uh, he made a very, very robust speech and attacking the South African Allied Workers Union as a terrorist or, uh, trade union, which uh, employers must never dare recognize it. And it exactly happened like that. And uh, if I may just quickly reflect the, 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 the extent to which uh, the, the projection of the labor relations in, in the East London area mm. is that companies like uh, Johnson & Johnson, that's where SAW was more organized, the then company called uh, Wilson Roundtree. In 1981, mm. there was a huge confrontation with the labor movement, SAW, where about 500 workers happened to be dismissed. The same company that makes sweets, yeah? The same company that yes. is called Nestle now. Mm. Uh, Mercedes-Benz, as well, as I said, was not immune because in that, in the early 80s, um, a number of workers became victims 
for being associated with the South African Allied Workers Union, the, the, the company management was very, very vicious. And any person who was found to have been associated with SAO and uh, was immediately dismissed without even uh, and, uh, uh, taken through the disciplinary uh, process, just uh, mm. imminent dismissal, no representation, unfair dismissal. So it just happened like that. So the chloride even closed is one of the companies and because of the confrontation with the workers associated with South. So that was the, 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 the period. And the same period was the, happened to be the build-up to the formation of COSATU. It's when the labor movement was beginning to consolidate itself and the, towards uh, the call for one union, one industry, one country, one federation. So that period was indeed a period of consolidation within the labor movement, mm. uh, which did not augur well sure. within the employers. Let, let's now, pause there slightly, <laughs> uh, Baumzi. I, I want to bring in Henny here, because uh, uh, we'll, we'll come back to you uh, on the issue, of course, of uh, the formation of COSATU in 1985 uh, and uh, the injunction of uh, one sector, one union, and more importantly, what uh, pressure that placed on uh, the workplaces uh, I guess, in pursuit and uh, in consolidating the effectiveness of the sanctions. Henny, you've written quite extensively on this particular matter. And one gets a sense, uh, certainly there's this perception now in hindsight in uh, a post-apartheid South Africa, that when you talk about big business, in particular when you talk about some of these multinationals, there's always this perception that all of them uh, historically have always been on the right side of history. They've always... Uh, uh, acted as the conscience of uh, the white community uh, and in essence were always opposed to apartheid. I mean, if you even look at the transcripts of some of the submissions that were made at uh, the TRC process by many captains of industry in South Africa, the likes of the Bobby Gottsells, the, the Johan Ruperts of the world, the sense that one gets is that uh, they had always opposed apartheid because, you know, it stopped the free functioning of uh, the free market and yet in your work, it's quite clear that uh, there was this, uh, if I can use the Afrikaans word here, this tunadering between uh, the National Party government and, of course, uh, uh, large captains of industry, uh, both local and multinational. Hi, Bonga. I think I would absolutely agree. You know, the, the work that my colleagues and I do at Open Secrets focuses on the, the role of the private sector in economic crimes and whether it's you know, a gross violation of human rights like apartheid or the current environment in which we have economic crime and state capture today. The narrative, I would argue, is pretty much the same, is that You've got, uh, you know, you've you've got corrupt, you will, if you like, corrupt politicians. You've got doing a patent, uh, oppressive regime in charge. But the question of complicity by private actors, whether it's accountants during the Gupta state capture or large multinationals in South Africa doing apartheid, is often viewed by many people in the same light as, as if to say they too are similar victims um, of many of these crimes and they aren't part and parcel of that system. I think the evidence speaks directly against it. It was definitely the case during apartheid. The system in itself, um, uh, in fact, made it, you know, as much as the captains of industry, as you say, went to the TRC to say that uh, they were the ones who suffered. If anything, the truth is that the system of apartheid benefited them grossly at the expense of the majority of this, of the, of this, uh, of this people's, uh, the, 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 you know, people in our country. Uh, and they were, you know, they received untold favors um, and benefits and with very little requirement for them to pay back anything for those injustices. Um, you know, the, there was a discussion about a wealth tax towards the end of the, the TRC process in the late 1990s, so 20, almost 20 years ago. And we saw our government, and I think this is quite crucial, 
failing to push, put forward uh, proper recommendations and decisions around how to tax corporations effectively who had benefited from apartheid. Uh, you know, I think we, you could see this as a moment in time and something that needs to be looked back at, but I think also crucially it helps set a tone for impunity. Mm. The moment you start to let the big fish off, if you like, um, you, you, know, you set the tone for what continues to happen. And, and I think that was a crucial moment in our history, a misstep, if you like, in the process of trying to seek uh, and, att- and obtain justice uh, in, in this country. Mm. Let, me, let me bring you in here. Certainly with, with what you know and uh, in your own experiences of uh, what had happened at Mercedes-Benz in particular and even some of the other corporations, uh, multinational corporations that you mentioned, uh, the likes of Wilson Roundtree and the likes of Johnson & Johnson and Mondi. Um, what would you make of this call now that uh, uh, we should be pushing for reparations from some of these companies who, I guess, uh, were implied and direct beneficiaries of a crime against humanity? Well, um, history is judging for itself. I think from the point of view, our historical experience, I think to me that is a justifiable call. As I indicated that in many ways, many people, because of the, the attitude, whether of management or, or captains of industry then, many people became victims of the circumstances. And whether it was based on unfair dismissals, uh, whether it was uh, based on the the closure, this investment, which was a thorn to the flesh of the people because it yielded some uh, huge rates of unemployment and all those things. But I'm saying then, in my view, I think it is a justifiable call. Uh, surely there is a reason and, uh, to put pressure on them and uh, to really compensate people for who became victims unfairly. Because on the other side, there was a strong denial for what one would refer to as a freedom of choice by denying people, I mean, to belong to unions of their own choice. Uh, so there are many, many other things. If you talk Mercedes-Benz, for example, where Mercedes-Benz is residing, it is a land uh, that belonged to uh, people who lived there who were uh, removed unceremoniously but I think they've lost a claim at some stage. Mm. But I'm saying that uh, the people who lived there, that place was called Kwanongongo. Fort Glamorgan. Mm. Uh, yes, yes. In all that uh, part of land, uh, people who were never compensated, I mean, uh, fairly. So, but I'm saying all those things, if you take those things into account, you would really justify the call for compensation and so on. Mm-hmm. Let's pause there slightly, and I must say, Baumti, uh, that uh, you know, for me, it's unsurprising, nor is it a coincidence, that uh, uh, you know the uh, prison that uh, the likes of uh, Miriam Makeba and many others spoke of, Guanongongo, uh, is uh, probably a stone's throw away from uh, the plant there of uh, Mercedes Benz, and one wonders how many activists uh, on the plant and on site were actually ratted out to end up at uh, Fort Glamagan Prison. And uh, I'm going to take some of your calls on the other side of this. I'm in conversation with Henny Van Fieren author of Apartheid Guns and Money, and also joined by Scooter Alfred Mtsi, uh, now a speaker at uh, the Buffalo City Metro, uh, all the way out in Monty, and a former uh, uh, union organizer and NUMSA, a shop steward at uh, Mercedes-Benz's plant, all the way out in East London. And we're talking about reparations. Should many of these multinational companies who benefited from the apartheid government be paying reparations? Let me know what you think.
KG, you are in Bloemfontein. Good evening to you. Good evening. Thank you very much for taking my call. Sharp, sharp, my brother. Yes, I think uh, that piece, that call by the TSC is actually out of order. Okay, say more. Those people are just trying to, to be re- relevant, seeing that uh, they will actually be extinct come the 8th of May. They will cease to exist after the 8th of May. I would have rather had them make a call to say, uh, in the past, 25 years. What is it that we can present to our people, Africans, to mm. say, uh, since the dawn of democracy, this is what we have managed since we acquired the levers of power. This is what we have managed to to, to, to establish and, and to build. Because you see, uh, if you speak, for example, of Sanlam, mm. uh, uh, earlier you said Sanlam was, was, was established and, and, and started in the 20th century by Africaners. Yeah, right? around 1918, 1920, some of the... Yes, and it, it, it continues to exist today. Mm. We we started VVS uh, Mutual Bank uh, when, when I was listening, <laughs> roughly 25 <laughs> to 30 years ago. No, no, it's much and older than that. It used to be the Vendor Building Society. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, mm. but what it managed to do is to collapse it instead of to grow it in, in this 2019, in democratic South mm. Africa. Mm. Yes? And yes, yes, my, my my attitude. Sure. My attitude is, it is true. We won't deny it is common cause that Africaners benefited from apartheid. Mm. But at least Africaners have got something to show to their people, to fellow Africaners, to say, you see, by us oppressing black people, we have managed to to pull you and lift you out of poverty. But, you understand? But KG, here's the question, right? So mm-hmm. every other nation that has been oppressed on the scale as large as what we saw in South Africa. Think of the Jews in uh, uh, Poland and Germany and, of course, what happened in 1948 uh, with uh, Israel and the Palestinian question. And uh, you also think about many other places where reparations have been placed on the table. Why, why now should we be applying, I guess, a lens that is different in South Africa or a frame of reference that is different and say, hey, let's let these companies go. They built their own stuff. Let's let them uh, carry on and maybe they can do a small Yana BE deal here and there. You see, here's the thing. Eh? Uh, I think history says uh, uh, there was a time when we had the so-called poor uh, white problem in yes, Africa. Yeah, yeah. And such white was African or white. It was not English white. It was mm. African or white. The establishment at that time were brilliant and wise enough to realize that our people, all men say, are hungry. They don't have jobs. And they went on to establish your then South African says, Porvech, Cisco, Sanlam, uh, your, your your former sen, uh, central vest corporation for, for for the farmers and and a lot of other things to appeal to their people. Yeah? Mm. We've had the police of BEE for the past five years, and the statistics say we are actually uh, 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 becoming poorer as the years go by. Why? Is sure, that? sure. You understand? And I would I would dare to ask the PEC: Is the PEC going to demand of our present government to pay reparations for the billions and billions of money? That managed to flee our country in the past uh, mm. five, ten years. You understand? And, and the bottom line is this. We've had BEE for, 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 for the past 25 years. Ne? Sure. But what do we have to show for, 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 for that police of BEE? My oh. brother, I'm turning 44 this year. Mm. I hope to live to, to 70-something for the next 30 years. Sure. So that I can say to my children, we've had uh, democracy for the past 50 years. And in that 50 years, we've managed to achieve... Zilch, nothing. Okay, KG. KG, hold the line for me for a second. I want to bring in Henny. Henny, uh, what do you make of KG's reading of the economic history? I mean, I think on the, you know, Arma Blanca's question on the poor whites issue, I think it's spot on there. M- much of, I guess, the industrial development and infant industry developed by the uh, uh, National Party government had, uh, uh, I guess, a determined role to resolve the challenge of 
poverty and of course uh, hopelessness among uh, working class Afrikaners and uh, those uh, certainly who are poor among the Afrikaner community. Yeah, uh, certainly I think, you know, as you say, it's, it's, a, it's a century-old model and if one looks at many of these large corporations that were established with it, Sunlam or Naspas or others that have their history in that period, it was often a cooperative type of structures. They were attempts to try and bring together the bits of capital that they were um, to support largely, as you say, poor white working class Afrikaners um, who had been excluded by, by English capital at the time. Um, but having said that, there becomes a point where it was no longer just about looking after uh, the interests of, of the poor. I mean, ultimately, if we think about these mega corporations that they were becoming by the 1970s and 80s, at, at really at the height of apartheid, these were, um, these were corporations that were feathering the nests very often of their managers. The Tom Fosslers, the many other corporate titans that emerged from there became very wealthy, partly off their relationships with the apartheid regime. It wasn't uh, corporate. These were not corporations that existed in, you know, if you like, in, as islands. They were part and parcel of a state. We know that they funded the National Party, helped to ensure that at the time that the, the same government was putting children in prison, they were writing checks for the leadership of that party. Um, and, and so I think, you know, you can't disconnect the profits that those corporations were making, um, particularly in the latter part when, when apartheid had become this, really you know, taken over from colonialism as a state theology, if you like, uh, you can't disconnect mm. that uh, from, you know, from, from the profit yeah. making by, by those corporations. Baumzi, let me bring you in here. And uh, KG, thank you so much for that call, my brother. I really appreciate it. And I uh, certainly hope KG. we can engage going forward, my brother. KG, okay, all the way out. Can I just make a short, please? Yes, please. Yes, just to say, you know, mm. I would beg all uh, wealthy Africaners, Anton Rupert and, and those very rich people, sure. to please, consider just to pay these reparations. You know, for one, one goal and one goal only. So that they get it over and done with. So that they can then say afterwards, 10 years after paying the reparations, to say, you know, we paid the, 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 the party tax and everything. What have you achieved? Okay. Because the only thing that is sure. going to happen, with the way things are going, just more money to steal and to take to Dubai and to all these other fancy people. Thank okay. you very much. KG, thank you so much for that. And I certainly hope the likes of JR there, Johan Rupert, Nabokwes Becker, Nabobonke, uh, are listening into that one. Baumsi, let me bring you in here. Um, and, and I like the point that Henny is making that, you know, we're talking about a government here on the one hand which was detaining young people in the townships, and yet in the same vein was receiving from the likes of Kurs uh, Becker and many others, the Johann Ruperts of the world, as Henny's workers uncovered, checks written out to the National Party to continue to bankroll this kind of repressive machinery. Uh, and, and, and the question that I have, certainly for you, having worked in the post-apartheid government, is how that particular history of this relationship between private interests and a repressive state has actually made the task of reconstructing the, the same communities, the same Tangan village, the same Tanzani, the same uh, areas where uh, all this repression was visited on our people. How, how has uh, all of these old relationships made the task of reconstructing many of those communities uh, a lot more difficult? Well, um, in fact, the truth is that uh, the collaboration uh, between well, the, the, the industries and the apartheid government indeed made things very difficult in the sense that you the the the, the, the workplaces became the theaters of uh, apartheid discrimination firstly in mm. many ways uh, that the practices that were demonstrated in the workplace were reflected you know apartheid in total 
in the sense that, for instance, if you take the example where I was in Mercedes-Benz, then from that period, because things have changed now, which we do appreciate. Mm. Things have, have changed dramatically because by then, this had more to do with the attitude of the conservative type of management uh, from late, uh, well, earlier before the mid-80s. But at the, towards the end of the 80s, things changed. New management came in, which was more liberal, and uh, which even changed the attitude of the company to focus more in investing for the benefit of the local community, uh, supporting a local community uh, in many ways. So as we see now, at least the company has transformed for the better. It may not have reached the expectation. But mm. there is change. There is new sure. leadership there, which really came with a different attitude. As I say, it was more liberal to an extent of realizing the fact that there is a need of contributing towards the development of the workers. Mercedes-Benz introduced the first company to introduce uh, what is uh, similar to the RTP houses, a housing scheme for its employees. Mm which was something that was very, very positive, not only benefiting the employees, but also benefiting the, the surrounding communities. Mm. You know, So they have now recently opened a training center where more than 300 youth uh, are being trained uh, for permanent skills mm. you know, in the auto industry. So indirectly, that is a contribution uh, to the community. So I'm saying that there is also a commitment from the company, which is in a form of uh, demonstrating their confidence here in South Africa to invest more than $1 billion. I think it was last year, uh, around June, sure. July, when they made an announcement that they are going to invest more than $11 billion for the next 10 years I mean, to improve uh, production in the company. So they are here to stay which is what we appreciate. But at the very same time, the whole issues of repatriation are matters that, of course, are handled legally. We so wish that they be bound by any legal outcome of that process. Mm-hmm. Let's yeah. pause there slightly for a second and take one of our callers who's calling us all the way out in Swane. Sivu, good evening to you. Hey, Mataya, welcome to Metro FM. <laughs> Yeah, I think the, the the topic is very important, ne? Yeah. and uh, like it comes at an appropriate time. I mm. think. And I like what uh, Mr. Fanfirian said about the this recommendation, which the government did not follow up on, on things as simple as a wealth tax, for example, and mm. the like. But um, I think one mistake that is making is um, I think he's focusing too much on message expense, where where is message expense is just an example is just one company. But here in Pretoria, for example, you had your BMWs, your Toyotas, else and the like. So um, the, the, the discussion should actually be broader, and we, we should be saying that we are demanding of um, all of these companies which were actually active, um, in which kept the, the apartheid economy going, to actually do things. I mean, I don't think you know, it should be about paying, for example, what Dadumza is saying with the people who were discriminated against, um, like who were unfairly dismissed um, at a Mercedes Benz or BMW or whatever at the time, um, those people should be compensated. It should be about, um, we should be demanding that these companies do a lot more now for our communities. Like we've still got all of these problems where 
um, like the health sector, for, for example, um, we're struggling, it's falling apart. Mm. Um, we've got, obviously, all of these other basic services, like your education system and the like. I believe what the, um, these companies should be made to invest a lot of money there, perhaps mm-hmm. not managed. In fact, it would be better that such money is not even touched by the by state, state hmm? or a state institution, mm. and it was run um, like by like some independent body um, where they would have control and everything, and um, it would benefit um, millions of South Africans mm. going forward. Yeah. Naram Kubandiabulela, thank you so much, Sivu, for that uh, input there. Mr. MC, as we wrap up, I'd like you maybe to respond to what Sivu is raising and also, I guess, uh, what other policy measures potentially could have a similar effect to reparations. Uh, Sivu mentions the issue of wealth tax and uh, so does Heni, but uh, what other issues uh, do you think at a local level potentially could be pursued uh, to ensure that uh, we we try and rebalance the scales somewhat uh, after the disaster of uh, that crime against humanity? Well, on my part, I think I do agree with the recent speaker. I fully agree with him. Maybe really, indeed, I was a bit limited <laughs> to one company, maybe because of the experience associated with it. But maybe one of the things, and I fully agree that the plowback attitude is the one thing that we need to encourage uh, these companies to do in the form, for instance, uh, investment in social or social services in our communities and the investment in, on issues like uh, sports development, which is now uh, post-apartheid, it is beginning to diminish a little bit. So those are the things that as a way of a plowback uh, kind of uh, contribution from them is something that indeed needs to be uh, encouraged. Um, so I as well agree with the fact that some, not all of them, are contributing towards development of uh, communities are doing the same thing equally. Uh, they differ, but also depends on the trade unions. They mm. need to apply more kind of pressure in ensuring that the extent to which these industries, private industries, contribute into community development yeah. is indeed improved. Okay. Any last one uh, on your end? Uh, and I think Sivu makes the point that uh, uh, we should be thinking about these multinationals as, um, I guess, a grouping. And uh, yet, when we think about it, I mean, the Kulumani Support Group took uh, IBM and many others uh, to the courts in the U.S. and they weren't really successful. How has that particular experience, I guess, circumscribed uh, what is possible? And uh, more importantly, uh, what other policy measures uh, can achieve uh, uh, the same ends of of reparation or even complement uh, reparations because I, I certainly think that that's something that should be on the table. Yeah, thanks, Ibonga. I think uh, Siva's points are, are well made. And you know, when we think about the Kulamani support group, these are thousands of people who have been identified as victims of apartheid, have still not seen any pr- you know, proper payments being made up despite years of, of struggle uh, almost 20, 25 years later. Um, our organization, Open Secrets with the Center for Applied Legal Studies at Fitz University, have brought complaints against some banks now who were linked to the arms money machine, the money laundering for the purchase of arms by the apartheid regime uh, with authorities in Europe. We are pushing those cases hard, and we believe in the long run we need to be looking at the possibility for actual damages claims against some of those banks uh, in Belgium and Luxembourg in particular. These are only the tip of a much bigger iceberg. But very clearly, I think that what we need is a proper discussion in this country about the kind of gross inequality we've allowed to fester. These people who have profited hugely off apartheid, the idea that we are celebrating, continue to celebrate billionaires 
in, in the face of po- poverty in this country, I think is something um, that is reprehensible and that you know fundamentally needs to change. The government needs to take, I think, a, a, a you know much dimmer view in terms of the role of corporations in various crimes from apartheid until today, and it can no longer be a case of handouts. What we've accepted from apartheid was the corporations who were complicit would not would just phone up Nelson Mandela, or he would phone them up rather, and he'd ask them to build a school, and they thought they could wash their hands off apartheid. We see this today with the KPMGs and others involved in state capture. They think they can give small handouts to civil society organizations working on corruption and take those proceeds of crimes to try and you know, effectively buy silence in our society. And I think this is the kind of practice that breeds impunity. Mm. Uh, and we need to, you know, the, the, the state institutions, the prosecuting authority and others need to be brought in to find ways that we can hold actors to account. We can talk about holding hands, but nobody else is going to come to the party the more we talk about it. I think the, the state needs to, democratic state needs to use the law in, you know, in much more creative ways to, to promote fundamental justice uh, for such crimes in our country. Awesome stuff. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Skuta Alfred is a former trade unionist and uh, speaker of council in the Buffalo City Metro, uh, having worked, of course, at Mercedes-Benz for many years, uh, for all the way out from 1983 uh, right through to the early 90s. And Abulala uh, for joining us uh, this evening. And also Henny Van Furen is the author of Apartheid Guns and Money.